Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Keith Kantu, who is a research affiliate at the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard. He's also a visiting assistant professor at St. Lawrence University. Um, Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, uh, Raj. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Indeed, we'll be, of course, speaking about Keith's brand new OUP, OUP publication, um, Like a Tree Universally Spread. Uh, the subtitle is uh, um, Sri Sabhapati Swami and Shivaraja Yoga. So uh, certainly this is more or less a topic of your book, but, you know, who is this Sri Sabhapati Swami? Who is this guy? <laughs> I mean, so- how much time do you have, right? Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it's a wonderful question. Uh, he was a Tamil yogi uh, in the 19th century and a Swami who has kind of been mostly eclipsed uh, in kind of the study of yoga and Hinduism today. But during the 19th century, especially towards the late around um, 1880, he uh, had traveled up to Lahore, which at that time was in the in the British Punjab. And he met an editor, a Bengali editor named Srish Chandra Boshu, and together they released a pamphlets of lectures on uh, Vedanta and Raja Yoga. That's what they were titled. And that got picked up by the founders of the Theosophical Society, Elena Blavatsky and Henry Olcott. And from there, this Swami sort of blossomed into a, a pan-Indian international figure. Yeah. How did you become interested in this figure for your research? To be perfectly honest, I encountered his names, uh, his name in the writings of Aleister Crowley, so the British um, occultist, poet, avant-garde um, uh, kind of uh, author, and uh, he wrote about Sri Sabapati Swami uh, in his books on magic. He had encountered Sabapati's works uh, during his trip to Madurai, and um, also I think he visited Chennai as well. And um, yeah, reading about it there, I sort of was encouraged to look more at Sabapati's English uh, language source. And that kind of one thing led to another, I guess, from that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you mentioned uh, the works uh, of an occultist in passing. This Mm -hmm. book is actually published as part of Oxford's, I believe, um, Studies in Western Esotericism. Correct. Why... um... Say a word about esotericism and why would that be appropriate for this project, an appropriate space for this project? Yeah, esotericism, you know, sometimes it's called uh, Western esotericism in terms of how the field developed, but there's a lot of debates over sort of, you know, Western and Eastern and what's appropriate, you know, in terms of the the Orientalist, you know, legacies of of um, some of these words and also the, the discipline as a whole. Esotericism really comes out of looking at teachings and interpretations of teachings, sometimes from a non-literal level, 
And so, you know, there are many times literal interpretations of a religion or a religious practice. And esotericism often tries to look at the more spiritual or mystical or internal dimensions of a religious practice. Um, sometimes that gets uh, communicated through secret communities, right? Uh, whether they're occult or new religious movements, esoteric movements. But sometimes the teachings are kind of, um, you know, advertised secrets, for lack of a better word. You know, they're kind of out there in the open. They're um, expressed, you know, and they're published in books. And so it's, it sort of depends on the movement. But it's a, it's a thriving academic field of research nowadays with conferences um, around the world. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, conferences about traditions around open secrets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um would he uh would uh, um would the swami have seen himself as uh was he purposefully um uh, how do i phrase this were his teachings uh to what extent were his teachings publicly available and to what extent was he teaching to a cloistered community i think his goal was to make these publications as widely available as possible. Um, he embarked on this sort of translation enterprise, moving from his English work and then uh, Tamil works. One work is trilingual English, Sanskrit and Tamil with a Marathi appendix. You know, he was really trying to express and get the word out on this uh, system of yoga that he called Shivaraji Yoga and sort of how to obtain uh, this samadhi, what he translated as communion or spiritual ecstasy, this kind of composure, the state of yoga. And even though the teachings could be seen through a certain lens as esoteric or somewhat secretive, it's clear that he was trying to really get them out there and use print culture to his advantage. And I think he was one of the first yogis or authors to really harness the power of the book that had been emerging in colonial India and South Asia during that time and use that to his advantage as kind of a spiritual entrepreneur. Yeah. Who was his audience? Who was he writing for? I think he had two audiences in mind. Uh, clearly, one of the audiences was um, uh, kind of this global uh, milieu that he had encountered after meeting the founders of the Theosophical Society. And so he realized that there was a global market for these teachings in English. At the same time, he really, I think, focused a lot of his energies, especially as after he and the, the founders um, of the, the Theosophical Society had a falling out, he shifted focus to um, devotees and kind of... Um, educated um, readerships all across what was then um, India, right? British India. And now we would think of as independent uh, India, Bangladesh, right? Uh, Pakistan. He had this um, wide audience that he basically uh, used to disseminate his works and create these networks of patronage and sponsors. And so in on some of his works, you see, you know, these names were responsible for uh, helping the Swami, you know, publish his message. They were responsible for making basically his work possible. And so from those lists of names, we get a good idea of, okay, who the book was written for, right? So most of them were, were Tamil, actually, but there were also followers in uh, what was then Bombay, Mumbai, and um, 
Kolkata, Calcutta. What a question is, I mean, yeah. a fascinating and seemingly influential figure. Now, you, I think that your turn of phrase earlier was apropos that he was eclipsed somehow. Tell us about this eclipse. You know, yeah. why, how and why did this occur? My theory... Why, why is it that, that, that somebody <laughs> who's done 300 podcasts on Indian religion, such as myself, hasn't heard of this figure? You know, why is that? <laughs> You're not the only one. In fact, I, in oh, a lot of this research, I felt like I was up kind of against a brick wall um, in researching. I think... Um, I think one of the reasons is that, well, I mean, the first and most obvious reason is Swami Vivekananda. I think him coming to the scene created sort of um, an authority on modern yoga that then sort of really eclipsed any author on so-called Raja Yoga or um, basically the Swamis who came uh, before him in his wake. And so I think basically the the establishment of this kind of start date of modern yoga from Swami Vivekananda onward sort of leaves a gap between the medieval period and then Swami Vivekananda sort of emerges and creates this modern yoga. And so I think that narrative has sort of obscured the contributions of, say, uh, some of these uh, esoteric movements like the Theosophical Society and others in which Sabapati wasn't a member, but he was active in those milieus, right? And so, you know, if if you don't concentrate um, the study of yoga on those milieus, then you're not going to find his name as, you know, obvious. I think another reason is that um, people perhaps assumed that he had only written in English. And so for me, tracing his vernacular works, I realized that there was a web of publications also out there that um, were way beyond even just his English publications. And so I think just kind of looking at print culture as an English phenomenon, uh, especially during the colonial and, and pre-independence uh, periods, uh, has obscured uh, basically his importance uh, in, in terms of the spread of yoga. So those would be kind of the two main ones. And I think number three is the discourse of authenticity, I'd have to say, and sort of this preoccupation where either you know, the pre-modern yoga is kind of the true manuscript tradition. And then, you know, these um, orientalists and, you know, kind of sanitizing impulses, which, you know, to be fair, that that did happen. Um, but I think that trying to determine what is authentic and inauthentic in yoga has kind of led to a neglect of some of these characters who kind of have their feet in in both worlds, you know, and and are just as important, though. Well, there, there. He's he like like many others. Uh, he, he's a, he's a bridging figure, yeah, right? He's, yeah. he's a he's a translation matrix. I mean, I could certainly relate my own work, mm. and and certainly there have been a number of, of figures throughout Indian thought in recent centuries that you know that and 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 a number of our colleagues uh, who translate what we do with the academy to public audiences. You know, translate between. Um, 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 scholars and practitioners, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so he was, he was, uh, he was bridging. He was bridging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, by the same token, it, I don't get the sense from the depth of his content that he was dumbing down or um, that he was somehow uh, leaving out the substance in order to cater to his audience. I mean, just, his thought is quite fascinating. Um, what, uh, what if anything, do we know about his training? Yeah, so he uh, 
basically claims heritage from two uh, guru lines, so to speak, that are in the opening of his uh, Tamil as well as English uh, trilingual works. And one of them was a, a Virashaiva guru named Chidambara Periyaswamigal, um, who also went by Velacheri uh, Chidambara Swamigal. So he was this um, guru in the line of Kumaradeva, who was basically like a South Indian uh, Tamil a branch of Virashaiva teachings, or he embodied that kind of line where, you know, they're not really the monistic Vedantins, but then they're also not like the dualistic, you know, Shaiva Siddhantins either. They're sort of bridging this in-between path that tries to um, create a model for yoga that can be embarked on by someone of any caste by someone of any, you know, religious sect. And so um, he's sort of uh, getting training from that particular guru, Chidambara in Velicheri, basically around what is today the IIT, Chennai, Madras, and um, the airport. Um, and then he also uh, uh, claims uh, a kind of a line in the semi-mythological or legendary uh, figure called Shivajnana Bodha. And Shivajnana Bodhirishi is sort of directly in the line of um, Agastya, who, you know, you know from all of your, your work on the Puranas and the research. I mean, he's one of these figures that just comes up, you know, in these legends. And and so, yeah, those are the two kind of main, um, I guess, loci of his, his training and expertise. And he claims to have spent nine in one account, nine years, another account, 12 years, basically training yoga in the Podigai Malai on the border between uh, Kerala and Tamil Nadu. Fascinating. What are, um, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to resist, uh, resist uh, the temptation towards uh, nerdy symbology about Augustia. Maybe we can talk <laughs> at some point, but um, um, what are some of the marks of his thought? You know, say a bit about his, his thought, his, his, his corpus of work, his contribution. Yeah, I I think one of his main contributions is using visual diagrams and aids to really explain the yogic body or um, basically the, sometimes it's called the subtle body, right? The sukshma sharira. Um, he uses quite a few words, different terms. Uh, he uses one especially called the linga asvarupa and sort of this inherent form of the linga that's then uh, described in a diagrammat diagrammatic form and explained um, basically through numbers in his texts. And I think he's one of the first authors to really have like a, a almost like a multimedia book that connects to pictures and diagrams and then explains things in those terms. And one of the other things that sort of connects his thought to that is seeing this sort of body as encapsulating the whole entire universe and the path of the yogi is not to align or activate chakras or things like that you know like these these energy centers in the body it's actually to cancel them out and so that's what becomes very interesting it's sort of this uh this negative way right like a via negativa where you go through each kingdom and you're trying to cancel them out but then there is this sort of up and down flow in the meditation. And so he created these really elaborate meditations on the body, basically as a Shivalinga. And I don't think he's one of the first to do this. Uh, he, 
um, is borrowing or or getting some of his inspiration from the Tito Mandiram, right? This uh, um, medieval Tamil Shaiva text uh, that you know says something very similarly. So, I think um, those are two of the main marks, and also on a social level, really trying to get away from sectarianism. And especially uh, Eric Steinschneider has written about this, uh, this sort of warring sects in Tamil Nadu and create kind of, I would say, like a yoga consensus of sorts through the practice of these uh, techniques, as well as mantra. So he also has an entire book on all kinds of different mantras for, um, you know, every kind of god and goddess. So, yeah. Let me... I'm trying to think of how to ask this without putting, <laughs> without asking a leading question. Um, is it fair to say that he would see, he would regard his tradition, his traditional training as, um, as separate from Tantra proper? That's a good question. I don't think he ever uses the word Tantra, or at least no Tantrikas do. No Tantrikas do. Let me, let me phrase it another way. Um, would you consider his work uh, tantric in part or in whole or not at all? I consider the yoga to be a kind of tantric yoga and uh, following on sort of a definition, you know, in roots of yoga, for example, you know, Jim Mallinson and Mark Singleton, they kind of have this, this um, uh, dichotomy of various different kinds of yoga. And if we're going to call tantric yoga, this sort of yoga of, you know, the the inner body and this kind of internal alchemy, there's definitely that going on. Um, yeah, and I mean, in terms of the mantras and everything, I mean, there is a ritual there. At the same time, I wouldn't say that the, I mean, the emphasis is definitely not on a sexual form of tantra, even though there is like a limited amount of instruction in that that I have found the main real emphasis is on this sort of yogic meditation, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think it's fascinating. And, and of course, you know, whenever I teach Tantra to, yeah. to, to my students, whether they're academic or they're, they're wisdom teaching students, it's, you know, the, the recurring joke and caveat at the outset is, look, uh, Tantra is much more, if at all, black magic or good sex i mean <laughs> so let's let, let's 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 shelve those uh, those uh those uh yeah, caricatures and and yeah. and uh, tantra insofar as sort of uh leveraging shakti for for alchemy and and uh, shaktifying self if you will in the world i think it's fascinating that clearly he's influenced from you know tantric notions of the human complex and selfhood and layers of the self and as you say the sukshma sharira and in particular the pranamaya kosha and the flow of energy and the, the nadis and the chakras and that's very much what we think of i think uh, as part of sort of the tantric conception of the self but but by the same token um very apropos the school of yoga it's mm -hmm. not about awakening and identifying with with the feminine aspect or or, or the shakti. It's about actually divorcing yourself from prakriti, <laughs> you know, switching switching the chakras off, and so attaining the sort of um, you know kaivalya or awakening or, or sort of uh, unalloying oneself from 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 prakriti. Which uh, I imagine that that's how he would ultimately view the goal in his work. Would you say? Yeah, he talks about sort of the the yogi having this eye to the universe and then being like a tree universally spread, right? Which, which became the title um, of the book. And I think that in terms of this cancellation, 
Absolutely. I mean, he's concerned with with essentially divinizing um, a yogi and giving techniques by which one can obtain that sort of inner insight. Yeah. What um, what surprised you, if anything, or what was most impressed upon you about this figure and his work during your research? What most impressed me was how detailed and how technical the terminology was. Uh, most of the uh, you know manuals on yoga or tantra that I had previously read did not contain the same level of step-by-step instructions, so to speak, and then also the same level of just extreme minute detail on every aspect of the self. I mean, going into detail on what this tattva is and all of these tattvas, but all from a very practical point of view. And I would say that was one. And then number two was this notion of pure ethers or akashas. And so, you know, like you mentioned, uh, there is this notion of the the kundalini or awakening this divine feminine in some ideas of, of yoga. But in his, he doesn't have this notion of kundalini as a feminine. He actually calls kundali this ring, which is associated with this root chakra that then what you try to get rising or moving in the body is this ether or sometimes it's called the prana like the prana kasha or ether of the vital breath sometimes it's called uh, the jnana kasha like the ether of gnosis or knowledge and that kind of metaphysics of really talking about what is quote-unquote subtle energy that really impressed me since i think it's an aspect of of yoga that gets talked about a lot but it's so misunderstood or maybe like a neglected topic of what that energy actually is, you know, what is what we call Kundalini? What is this um, ether that is supposed to move through the body? What is breath, prana? There are all of these discourses about it, but I think he's one of the first swamis to really think about that in terms of the, the pressure that he must have been feeling from colonial modernity. And so he's responding to some of the scientific discourses of the day as well and trying to sort of be as detailed as possible. Yeah, I think I think there is certainly that a response to his times. I also, to my mind, what he's doing is somewhat rare or unique insofar as uh, any of us who've, who've studied with traditional teachers know that there is tons and tons of content on, for example, each shloka of the Bhagavad Gita or each concept in the Devi Mahatmya, whatever, whatever text one is engaging through a paradigm of traditional exegesis it's abundantly clear that tradition holds 90% of the knowledge and living memory. And the 10% that we have, you know, we consider quote unquote, the text, which is a very different concept in terms of there never were standalone entities to be engaged sitting on a shelf, for example. And so what's interesting about this work, his work is that he's not writing a text. He's actually sharing all of the expositional exegetical elucidating that folks would never get on paper, would typically only get in relationship with a teacher. So I, I find that so fascinating. It's a very different genre. He's he's sharing all of his lecture notes mm-hmm. in printed form. And 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 the vast majority of teachers that, that I've trained with uh, would never do that. So it really is fascinating. And maybe it is because he, he recognized unique opportunity through his encounter with with. Uh, the theosophists and, and the time in which this was happening. So I, I, it is utterly fascinating. And it is fascinating that for all intents and purposes, he's calling about what the vast majority of practitioners would think of as Shakti flowing through the chakras or prana. 
but mm-hmm. the idea that the, the gendering has to be masculine in a sense because the the, the, the goal is actually purusha not prakriti mm-hmm. which may not necessarily be the case in most tantric traditions especially shakta tantric traditions mm-hmm. um but yeah fascinating fascinating stuff um do you want to quickly actually what sources do you look at I know you talked about this in your first chapter in particular, but where are you, whereby are you deriving all of this knowledge about this man? Yeah, so um, I started with his English lectures, which are regularly uh, readily available. And then I noticed that there was this tiny reference in one of them to, he published this other sruti called Kaivalya Raja Yuga in the Tamil language. And that got me thinking, you know, I was like, is that book still extant? You know, because I hadn't found it anywhere. And so I started typing, you know, this was when I was working on my MA back at University of Washington. So quite a long time ago, I was um, typing it in the library and nothing was coming up in the WorldCat catalog. And then finally, I was like, hmm, I wonder what happens if I use diacritics. And so I started to use the diacritic marks and just kind of recreate what that archaic transliteration would be in a diacritic, like, you know, contemporary Sanskrit transliteration. And then up comes this work in Hindi, of which there's one copy basically remaining at any library at the University of Chicago. And so I request it basically as soon as I can. And that work comes and then I'm like, okay, so there's some there's something else going on here that had another uh, introduction uh, that was translated into Hindi that had more details about his life. The English version had a brief kind of a bio, a biographical sketch that was probably pinned by his Bengali editor, Sri Chandra Boshu, this anonymous an- admirer uh, is how the, the sketch signed his name. And basically what I started using were these vernacular sources that I began to piece together after doing field work um, and finding some uh, Tamil sources, especially one at the Adya Library and Research Center, uh, in in uh, Chennai, another one uh, that was given to me later um, that's held at the Saraswati uh, Tanjore Mahal in uh, Tanjore. And there are these Tamil accounts of his life that tell a much more detailed story. And so using those in combination with his uh, English hagiography, I was then able to go to the sites that he mentions and do field work and kind of um, you know, I went to to visit his guru's um, Jiva Samadhi, right? So the tumulus or where he's uh, buried. And there's also a temple around that area in Belicheri and find kind of additional new information about um, about his guru and about that context. And then, you know, there still is also a temple that's associated with uh, Shiva, uh, with uh, Sri Sabapati Swami in Konor, which is basically a neighborhood of Chennai. And so I was able to go there and interact with some people and have some interviews and, you know, make those connections. So I would say a combination of field work, this kind of textual archival analysis, also, you know, excavating some of the the art and the the print. But the main sources have been just tracking down that web of publications, really. Yeah. Fascinating. Clearly, yeah. Um, clearly this was a man on a mission. Sri Sabhavati Swami. How would you characterize that mission? What do you feel his ultimate aim or aims or driving forces? He states this sort of at the beginning of his uh, his work in the, um, the 1883 trilingual work that was published. It's 
basically for the good of the world is how he frames it. Um, he's it's for the good of the world. And then also for university examinations around the world, he even says that too. I think he was really trying to up the sort of intellectual game, the jnana game of knowledge about yoga. I think he was tired of people sort of maybe writing it off or dismissing it as something that was unimportant. He definitely has a bone to pick with maybe the growing materialism among um, kind of uh, urban Indians, as well as sort of the colonial authorities. He doesn't like their kind of scientific materialism, even though he tries to sort of, you know, he has some really interesting scientific insights. He doesn't like the materialism. And so he's trying to basically um, re-spiritualize the country in a way, it seems like, um, and and also respond at the same time to the theosophists and say, hey, you know, look, these theosophists are coming here and they're very interested in our knowledge. And guess what? He, from his perspective, he's like, they're kind of right, even though they don't really talk about the practice. He's like, they're kind of right. We as Indians, you know, speaking from him, right? We as Indians should be teachers to the world is basically his perspective. And so I feel like that kind of generates and motivates him to say like, hey, we also have this scientific knowledge called yoga and we should talk about it, even if it's not quite the same as the, you know, knowledge of discovering oxygen and nitrogen and all that, you know, it's still a kind of science. And so I think that motivates him a lot. And so then what is the the mission of uh, one uh, Dr. Keith Kantu in writing this book? What is his main, <laughs> <laughs> what is his main goal, objective, aim, or hopeful takeaway for, for, for readers? You know, one of my main aims, you know, as a, as a Bideshi, a foreigner, you know, like this white Hispanic guy from, you know, Texas who, you know, I didn't grow up in an Asian household, um, uh, but I did start to get interest uh, interested in occultism and esotericism from a very early age. And I think that these kinds of um, connections in the esoteric world are very, very important from a cultural point of view, and I think should be taken seriously. I think that the presence of yoga in an esoteric milieu adds another dimension to studying occultism and esotericism that that is deserving of being told. And so um, even uh, within those isms, there's a lot of things, right? Like there, there's a scary dark world kind of, you know, in occultism, but then there's also like really interesting yogic connections and really interesting sort of you know, forms of practice that are really underexplored. And so, you know, for me, um, my personal interest comes from uh, uh, Thelema, which is this uh, new religious movement uh, in North America and Europe. And, you know, coming through, coming to Sri Sabapati Swami through my personal interest in Thelema kind of gave me this really uh, powerful bridge where then I could see, you know, this is something that is, deserving to be told, a really important story that is not just important to Thelema or occultism or esotericism either, or theosophy, but this is also something important for India and for South Asian studies. And the more I started to dive into it, it's also important for Tamil, you know, people who I talked to, um, this one uh, 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 employee who helped me track down some of these sources in the, the Tamil virtual academy, they've been digitizing a lot of these Tamil works. He was like, wow, like this work is just important for Tamil, just in general. Um, and so 
I think that there are these sort of multivaried, you know, as you asked Keith Kahn too, you know, as a scholar, you know, I'm as multipolar as someone, you know, like Sabapati Swami or perhaps Dr. Raj Balkaran, you know, you have these, these poles, you know what I mean? And I have these multipoles too, um, but I like to put it out on the table, you know? And so that's, uh, that's my answer. Uh, Dr. Raj is a very boring man. He just he's a just a Sanskrit narrative and and uh, and and has a podcast about boring, uh, not so boring actually, quite fascinating uh, um, 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 Indic religion books and very simple. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, so, so, certainly, certainly there there are many uh, uh, there are many uh, arms to uh, Raj Balkan Enterprises. <laughs> it appears. I'm just there along for the go. ride. It seems. But yeah, no, it's it's there. There are many dimensions to this work. I mean, mm. you know, I have uh, in the back of my brain. I mean, the, the podcast is a, a it's a labor of love. I mean, you know, bandwidth can be a bit tight, but I do try to pump out four to six interviews a month. But I really want to find the bandwidth to create a super user friendly website because at this point, mm. with somewhere near three hundred ish interviews, it's like I'd like to be able to have a site where at the you know click at the click of a button, here's all the Tamil. Uh, yeah. uh, studies. Here's all ritual studies, gender studies, uh, Sanskrit narrative, narrative in general, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I mean that would really avail um, the real utility of having of having this this sort of unwitting repository that that we're creating. Um, but but so work like this. I mean, can you imagine? It would be yeah. in uh, the esoteric. Click this would appear there. It would be in Tamil studies. Click this would appear there. Obscure figures, um, um, yoga studies. Um, you know, um, uh, pre-modern. You know, like a number of different um, modes mm -hmm. or, or, or or purviews on Indic religions. Uh, would this work be implicated? Which I find utterly fascinating. Right? Mm -hmm. um, which is why it's so it's so interesting. We've had a few. Uh, a few interviews as of late with scholars sort of illumining uh, hitherto obscure figures mm. and they're not doing so insofar as well they're really into this dude or, or they've all been men obviously because fortunately or unfortunately mostly unfortunately history is typically written by and for men but you know they're not just illumining these dudes because of navel gazing it's because yeah. of the colossal significance of these figures yeah that um just we, we don't know about mm -hmm. you know and I'm, obviously, I'm going to be well-read in, in Sanskrit narrative, but, you know, I have to be well-read in Hindu studies just by, by virtue of the podcast. And I've never heard of this guy. Like, never heard of this guy. Like, not even in a footnote somewhere. And so it's like, it's fascinating that these sort of gems are, are awaiting um, study, you know, and polishing. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of which, is this a figure that you continue to work on or, or have you taken a pause and you're working on something else at present? Tell us a bit about that. Yes. So I am uh, working on trying to publish uh, reprints and translations of some of his works. Um, they're um, still in the pipeline. I have one volume already finished, basically an annotated volume of his uh, lectures on Raja Yoga. So his first book um, with sort of the all of the archaic Sanskrit words annotated and footnoted. Uh, the next sort of on the list is to definitely put out his trilingual uh, work and his Tamil works. And so those are in contract technically, but the publishers uh, B 
being a little bit uh, lagging on releasing them, but I, I hope I hope they'll be out in the next few years. Um, well, uh, certainly when they do when they do um, see the light of day, so to speak, in the publishing wise. Um, I know a boring guy who runs a fascinating podcast that you can you know return <laughs> to. You can return to at All some right. point. Um, right. the, other thing, the other thing that I I can't help but see in this study in this work in this figure insofar as I think one of the caps I just can't stop wearing is that of teaching I love teaching I love disseminating ideas and really just in in codifying his work what we really are creating is teaching resources because he's yeah. he seems to be always teaching in everything he's doing and these are he's he's trying to educate people about these paradigms mm-hmm. uh from sort of an experiential perspective but but as, all, but as well as a, a being mindful of a perspective that's cogent to, mm-hmm. to rational discourse and i think it, it's it's fascinating that you can't help but peruse read his work and 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 feel as if you're in his classroom if that makes sense yeah, it, I mean, it does make sense. And it even is reflected in some of his diagrams. He has these diagrams of classroom-like meditation halls, right? There are these um, madaliums, um, or like a mata, basically, but they're these abodes for um, for yoga and for meditation. But there's a teaching component there where these uh, students, uh, male and female, are basically arranged, uh, you know, in desks, and then also these seated poses, right? But they aren't like, um, you know, like... Uh, British school desks or anything, but they're sort of these, you know, asanas, these uh, seated asanas uh, that you see. And they're uh, in basically um, looking towards a teacher who has one of those sort of pointer sticks. And the pointer sticks is going and pointing at these diagrams, basically explaining the diagrams that he's giving in these books. And so he even has like diagrams on how to construct a pedagogy on how these books are to be taught. And so I think that's really pretty unique, you know, as you're saying, like these are teaching resources. And I I don't think he was necessarily even designing these books to teach students as much as to teach teachers. I think there's evidence for that. And so these were, you know, that was part of his mission. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I mean, I'm sure at some point even can use his work for a sort of pedagogical project. You know, there's lots there. Um, and yeah, we're pretty much at time for today. We got a bit over, but it was, it was a fascinating conversation. So thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Raj, for having me. And yeah, no, I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. My pleasure. For those listening, we've been speaking about a fascinating new OUP publication called Like a Tree Universally Spread about this 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 obscure but, but dynamic and important figure named Sri Sabhapati and his, his, his sort of uh, distillation uh, d- the discussion of yoga called uh, the Shivaraj Yoga. So until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating, you know, um, all the gaps we have in our knowledge <laughs> about figures such as this. Take care. <laughs>